That's my king. He's enduringly strong. He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. Well, good morning, church. How we doing? How many of you felt it this morning getting out of bed after sledding yesterday? Anybody? Yeah, a few of us, right? For sure. Well, it is good to be together this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Josh, and my wife and I and our family, we just moved from Austin, Texas to plant a church in Nightdale, and so we look forward to getting to know you a little bit better in in the coming weeks and, and months ahead. Well, one of the things that we absolutely loved about living in Austin and we're looking forward to about being in Raleigh as well is just the number of things that you can do outdoors. And specifically as a family, we love to be able to be on the water. So whether it's lakes, whether it's oceans, whether it's streams, ponds, pools, whatever it may be, we really enjoy doing those things together as a family. And so when the opportunity came up for our kids to be a part of swim team, it was a little bit of a no-brainer because it would give them a chance to improve and, and kind of develop their skills together, but also it would give them and give us an opportunity to get to meet people. They say there's a t-shirt out there that says, if I only had one day to live, I would want to spend it at a swim meet because it would never end, right? If you, if you ever have track athletes or swim athletes, you know that. And so it's a great space for that. And so this, this past summer, my, my son Titus had been competing. And one of the things my kids love is that after every single heat, they give you a ribbon if you win. And so you get to, you get to win, like a chance to win four, five, six times a meet, which was fun for them. And Titus hadn't won any for the year yet, but it was the 25-yard freestyle and he jumps in the water and a bunch of seven-year-olds around him. And him and the seven-year-old right beside him, they are neck and neck. And they are the first 12 yards. They are right beside each other. But the other little guy is beating him by a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Titus flies by this kid and wins because the kid stopped and started swimming the other direction. Here's what happened. If you remember this summer, COVID was happening. Of course you remember that, right? You never forget that. Well, this kid had jumped in the pool wearing his COVID mask and he got halfway across and he remembered that. And rather than just continuing to swim, rather than ripping it off, winning the race became secondary to him and, and preserving his mask was the most important goal in mind. And so as a pragmatic dad, I got to celebrate Titus winning his first ribbon that day, but I also had a laugh at what happened in that moment when that little swimmer lost track of the main thing, lost track of the most important thing. And as I was thinking about that church, I was thinking we all have been there in life where we set out with a goal, we set out with a plan, and it's so easy to drift in a different direction. Students, The year starts. This is going to be the year that you get all A's. Or for some of you, this is going to be the year that you pass. Or whatever it may be. And things are going well. And then that new video game drops three weeks in. 
or basketball season starts or you get a job and that goal that you had, you drift. Or how about this? Remember getting married, those of us that are married, and we're like, man, I'm gonna be the greatest husband ever. Man, I'm gonna be that wife that honors, that respects my husband, that, that Paul talks about. And then one day into the honeymoon, <laughs> well, that ship already sailed, right? And then we kind of course correct, and then that first child comes along. And then we have to course correct again. And again, and we lose sight of that main thing, that most important thing. We do it in our relationship with Jesus. For those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, you remember when you met Jesus for the first time and your eyes were open to his greatness and his supremacy and you could not stop talking to people about how great your God was. You could not stop being just amazed at, at his goodness and then we drift away from that. And time and time again, we find ourselves in that space where we know what the most important thing is, but slowly over time, we move away from it. We start out with our eyes fixed on Jesus, and then we fix them on something else. We start out with Jesus in the center, and then it becomes something else. Alice desperately wanted a parrot. She loved the idea about having an animal that could talk to her. So she saves her money and she goes to the pet store and she buys this parrot. She brings it home with the cage and the thing will not talk. So she goes back to the pet store the next day. The owner says, I think you should try a swing. It will make it feel more comfortable. Nothing. She goes back to the pet store. I think you should try a mirror and a tree. Nothing. It ends up being the weekend. And so Monday morning, the pet store owner, he shows up. And Alice is there, and she is in tears as the doors are opening that morning. And he said, Alice, what, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And she says, the parrot died over the weekend. He said, what? The parrot died? Well, did he, have any, did he say anything before he died? She said, yes, right before he passed away. He said, don't they sell any food at that pet store? <laughs> That's how easy it is to drift and to lose sight of what matters most. And I've found being in the church my whole life that we can get distracted by plastic trees and by swings and by mirrors and lose sight of the food of Jesus Christ who wants to be supreme Lord of everything. Amen. And we can move that direction and it can be as disastrous as it was for that parrot as we lose sight of that. And over the course of the last month, we have been looking at the supremacy of Christ and how that changes things. We've been looking at how when Jesus is in the center, everything else can flow out of that. How that brings things into perspective. And I just want to pause for a second and say that if you're in the room this morning and you are searching and you are seeking, and maybe you're even a little bit skeptical about things of faith, I would invite you to just listen in on this conversation. The conversation that we're going to have for the next 30 minutes or so are going to be geared towards followers of Jesus. But I think what you're going to find if you listen in is you're going to see how much God loves you and how God has taken his church and he has given them this mission that you can benefit from and that God is a God of love and a God of pursuit that is chasing you down with a relentless love. And so I invite you to listen in as we talk about that. And where we've been over the last few weeks as we've been talking about the supremacy of Jesus is, is we began talking about when Jesus is supreme, it, it invites us to be thankful people and people with a life of surrender. 
And I want to let you know, next week, Pastor Aaron is going to be here talking from the text that we kind of skipped over for this week, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. And he's excited. We're going to be looking at the wonder and the awe that comes when Christ is supreme. But as we've looked at the surrender, as we've looked at the thankfulness, the, the food has been cooked, the table has been set. And so now it is time for us to eat, to put into action what that means and what that looks like. And if Jesus is supreme, and if Jesus is the ultimate Lord of our life, here's what it's going to lead to, church. It is going to lead to a life of mission. It is going to lead to a life where we are pouring ourselves out for the good of others. And when I say mission, here's what I mean. What I mean is this. I mean complete devotion to the desire of God to see his creation brought back into a relationship with himself. It's this abandon that God has that says, I want to see my creation restored and I want to see my creation redeemed. You see, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that God has created us in his image and in his likeness. But because of sin, because of brokenness, we drifted away from that. And we moved from that. But God's desire is to see the broken relationships restored. God's desire is that if a person doesn't have a relationship with him, that they find their way back to him. And we see that throughout scriptures as God celebrates lost, precious things that return home. And the mission of God is that if we have been forgiven, that we get to be a part of that search party as we bring that about. And that's God's mission. And so God's heart is for people to come back and for those who have found their way back to help others come back. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29 is where we're going to be. But as you're turning there, I want to share a scripture with you that, that speaks to, and that's going to set us up for our time today, that speaks to God's mission, God's heart for people that don't yet know him. And so I'm going to read as you're turning there in Acts 17. It says this. This is, this is the, the writer of Acts talking, and he says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, God is involved in arranging the place in time and the time in time that we are and that we exist. God has arranged our boundaries. God has arranged our geography. You might say, why? That they, verse 27, would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In other words, in God's heart is this desire to be found. I want you to think about this for a minute as you think about where you were born and the relationships that God has brought you around. Could it be that you or your family moved to a neighborhood for a job, for a school, for a relationship, but God moved you there so that you could find him as your personal Lord and Savior? I think about my life. My granddad moved to Buffalo, New York in the 1950s. He thought he was moving there for a construction job. But in the 1950s, a couple people from Calvary Baptist Church in Niagara Falls, New York, invited my dad's two sisters before my dad was even of age to understand to church. And my dad's two sisters met Jesus, and eventually the entire family did, my dad and all five of his siblings. And it changed the trajectory of their life because God had placed them in Niagara Falls, New York for that time and for that event. I think about my father-in-law, Gary, who thought he was going to Akron U for an engineering degree. 
But one day, a guy named Ed, who was a navigator's missionary, knocked on his door, shared the gospel with him, and my father-in-law gave his life to Jesus. And my wife's entire family was changed because of that. And think about your story and where God has placed you and when God placed you there and how things would be different. But God desires for us to find him. And if it's true of us, how much more true is that of the people that God has brought into our life that don't yet know him as their Lord and Savior? The people that are across the, the office from you, the people that sit with you at lunch or in the cubicle, your neighbors, the people you ride the bus with students, whatever it may be, could it be that God has placed them there not for an education, not for a job, but to meet Jesus through your impact on their life? Could that be the case? I believe it very well could be. So let's jump in. As we see here, Acts chapter 17, it lays it out for us. It lays out the mission of God. It lays out this story. And what I believe is that our life story, our purpose is to contribute to God's purpose until he brings salvation for the world to culmination. That's our purpose. Because church, here's what I believe, that mission was not created for the church, but the church was created for mission. Because mission existed before the church and God gave his church, right? God gave his church a mission to, to live, to carry out all of these different things. And that's our responsibility and that's our opportunity. And the entire Bible is this missional marvel. And the Bible is God's story of mission to the world. And mission is not just a list of things that God has given to us. Mission is the main thing that we are called to do as we honor God. It's for God's glory and it is for our good and that's what we have an opportunity to do. And I believe that when Christ's supremacy is in focus, what we will see, church, is that every moment in our life is made for mission. When we're resting, it's we're resting so that we can go on mission. When we're reading, it's so that we can go on mission. When we're relating to people, it's as we take them the mission of God. I read this week on, on Twitter, so it has to be true, that we make 35,000 decisions a day. I don't know how anybody possibly knows that. We make a lot of decisions in a day. Would you agree, church? Yes. What if every one of those decisions was framed through the idea that this is my mission, this is my masterpiece that I can present back to God? What if we were running things through that filter? And that's what we're invited to do. Because if God has truly arranged our place and our time, we're here for a purpose. We're here for a mission. Colossians chapter 1. I promised we'd get there, and now we're there. Colossians 1, verse 24, it says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Let's pause right there a second. We remember, because we've been learning the last few weeks. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, and he's writing from where, church? If you know, where's Paul writing this from? He's writing from prison. And let me tell you this, he's not in prison because he had writer's block and he thought that it would spur on some creativity, okay? He is writing from prison because he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul is writing there and he's experiencing the weight of this and, and he's experiencing the hurt that comes with it. And he's writing about rejoicing in his time of suffering. So we continue, sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of, of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Paul is writing about suffering while he is suffering. Because Paul sees every moment 
as an opportunity for mission. Because Paul sees that mission flows from suffering. And yes, sometimes suffering flows from mission as well, but mission flows from suffering. Paul realizes that out of some of his greatest struggles are going to be some of his greatest opportunities. And so he says he rejoices. It's not I endure my suffering. It's not I'm going to withstand it, but I rejoice. I celebrate my suffering. Why? Why is he saying that? Is it, is it because he has this, this Buddhist mindset? Is it because he's sadistic and he, he gets pleasure from pain and from suffering? Absolutely not. It's because he realizes what can come out of it. You see, for Paul, he understood that suffering was not optional. And you might say, well, yeah, he's, he's a super apostle. He's this super Christian. That, that's not true for us, Josh. But Paul had these words that he wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, where he said that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Do you hear that? Do we understand that? Okay, that word all, we're going to be talking about that a lot today. Can I tell you what that word all means? It means all, okay? It doesn't let any of us that want to follow Jesus off the hook. If we desire to be all in on following Jesus, we will experience suffering and persecution. And Paul is celebrating that. And this is, this is a, a joyful sacrifice that comes when realizing that Paul is giving up something he loves for something he loves more. He's realizing that he can rejoice in his suffering when what he gains through suffering is greater than what he gives up. And that's what Paul understands, and that's what he realizes and why he's suffering. I was thinking about it this way. In 2019, I went to the dermatologist for the first time ever in my life. And they, they found this ugly thing on the back of my ear, and they hacked it out, and they sent it away. And three weeks later, my dermatologist called me. And she says, hey, I need to tell you something. You have skin cancer. And, and, and anytime you hear that word, you, you kind of step back. Let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. Because it's on your ear, you're going to have to go see an oncologist. You're going to have to go into a real hospital. You're going to have to get surgery. We're going to have to bring a plastic surgeon, which, by the way, if you ever look, this ear looks good. This is one that had a plastic surgery. This one still is floppy. Anyways, you're welcome for that. Some of you are going to look at that the rest of the time together, so get past that, all right? But anyways, so, so, so they tell me, they say, listen, here's the deal. That you're going to have to get this surgery. They're going to put 12 stitches in. You're going to have to go multiple times for follow-up visits. I'm like, it's my ear. It's a mole. Is there an alternative? Well, yeah. We can let the cancer continue to grow in your ear. Eventually, it will spread to your lymph nodes, potentially, into your bloodstream. Your organs will shut down and you'll die. All right. <laughs> that was kind of a no-brainer at that point in time, right? I made the decision every one of us would have. Why? Because as much as I loved a pain-free life, I loved having life more. And Paul is saying here that as much as he loves not being in prison, he loves the gospel and the people that God has called him to go with the mission of God more. And that's why Paul is rejoicing, church. That's why he's doing that in this time. Because he is being able to suffer for the church's sake. And he's demonstrating why he can suffer and how, because it is a model and an example for the church to follow. So they could see it, they could receive it, but then they could do the same likewise as well. He continues to show us what that looks like. I do my share on behalf of his body. What is the church? In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. 
Now, we read that. And filling up what is lacking in Some of us, if we've been around the church a while, we think, man, what is lacking? I I didn't think anything was lacking in Jesus' death on the cross. Here's the beauty, church. We interpret Scripture with Scripture. And so what we know that Paul is not saying is Paul is not saying that Jesus' death on the cross needed more work added to it. Paul is not saying that it's the gospel plus my actions which will save you. He's not saying any of those things. Okay, we know that because when Jesus hung on the cross, he said it is finished. He said it is done. And Jesus will never suffer another beating for our sins. And we can celebrate that and we can, we can find comfort in that. But what he's saying in terms of adding or filling up is he is saying that by him being able to suffer, it allows the gospel to go out. It allows the gospel to be communicated. The great Martin Luther said it this way. He said, Jesus could have died a thousand deaths, but it would not have mattered if there was no one to tell others about it. The apostle Paul said, how will they hear without someone preaching and communicating the gospel to them? And so what Paul is saying, he's saying, Jesus suffering, okay, Jesus suffering paid the price for salvation. My suffering and our suffering church will proclaim the suffering to the world that's watching. He's saying that Jesus' suffering was to accomplish the payment for our sins. And our suffering is to announce it. In other words, Paul is saying, Jesus suffered the blows that were meant for me, so I will suffer the blows that were meant for him. Interestingly enough, the word that's used here for affliction never once was it meant to be used or was it used in the New Testament to talk about Jesus' death on the cross? But it was meant to talk about pain, persecution, suffering, and those kind of things, and that's the word. And so Paul, what he's saying ultimately is this. The effectiveness and the impact of the gospel is directly connected to your willingness and my willingness to suffer for the sake of Jesus. That's what he's saying. In other words, every moment is made for mission, including those moments of suffering. One of the things I love to do is I love to read biographies and autobiographies of famous men and women who have gone before us. And if you've never had a chance to to look at the story of Adoniram Judson, it's an incredible story. He was a man in the 17 and 1800s who was responsible for the church being planted in Burma. But it wasn't always rainbows and butterflies for him. In fact, he fell in love before he went to Burma with a lady by the name of Anne Hasseltine. And he wanted to take her and he wanted to make her his wife, but he wanted to go and give his life to reaching the people of Burma with the gospel. And so he felt it was necessary to write her father a letter before he went to Burma. And I want you to listen. I've got the words on the screen here for you, but I want to just invite you to listen. I'm not going to read all of it, but listen to the power of the words and what he talks about suffering. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. Dads with daughters, listen in a little bit here. To see her no more in this world. Think about that, right? I love Jesus and I love my daughters. I'm not sure how I'm responding to that conversation, if I'm honest with you, right? That's an intense, but this is what he's asking. No more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life. 
He goes on to talk about what that's going to look like, dying a painful death to the heathen people of, of, of the southern climate of India. And then he says it this, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. In other words, are you willing to let her suffer so that other people might see that Jesus is supreme, that Jesus is Lord of everything? And he goes on to talk about what that looks like. And guess what? Anne's father said yes. And Judson's words actually became prophetic because well, here's some of the things that happened to Anne. She went, she had three children. All of them died by the time they were six months of age. She eventually lost her life at a young age to smallpox. Judson himself outlived two of his wives and he outlived six of his 12 children. He preached for 12 years and 18 people gave their life to Jesus. But in his faithfulness and in his suffering, eventually there were a hundred churches that were planted in Burma and thousands of people gave their life to Jesus. And we are still seeing the result of that today. Why? Because he realized that it was his call and his opportunity to suffer. And that was an opportunity and an invitation. And so I wonder, church, what has following Jesus cost you recently? What ministry impact have you and I left on the table because of our unwillingness to suffer? What have we missed out on because we have simply chosen the comforts of what God has given us? You see, part of our calling in life is to suffer. And I'm not just talking about the suffering that happens because we live in a broken world. I'm talking about, and the scriptures are talking about the suffering that comes from being so committed to who Jesus is. And we can be confident that God will never bring us through a trial without sending us out to meet someone else in their trial. God will never bring us through something and waste it. He brings it through us for our good and the good of someone else and ultimately, if we handle it right, for his glory. So how are we sharing in the afflictions of Jesus? Paul continues, verse 25. He says, of this church, I was made a minister. That word minister, it literally just means, not just means, but it means servant. This isn't some high and mighty position that's being talked about, but a servant according to the stewardship, right? Every moment is made for mission. If I am a steward of what's been given, I'm a curator, I'm a guardian, a steward. From God bestowed on me for your benefit. So as a minister of the gospel, I'm doing what I'm doing for your benefit. In other words, Paul is saying, I see my role in church as a contributor, not just as a consumer. Paul understood, I believe, that the church didn't just exist for him. Paul understood that he was the church in the way that we are the church and that we exist for the world. And that's what he understood. And so he continues, he says, so that I might fully, out, fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested or has been put on display to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, listen, listen, this is powerful, which is Christ in you. That statement right there, that sets Christianity apart from every 
other religion in the world. Christ in you, the deity, the God inside of you. And what, what comes out of that? Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, the fulfillment of God's promise to restore his creation through the mission that he sends people out on. And so Paul is saying that through his preaching, there is a mystery that is displayed to the saints or to the church. And the revelation of that mystery is the hope of the world. Well, unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about that. So the Colossians, as they hear this word mystery, they're going to be leaning in a little bit. There's false teachers that are all around them. There's this Gnostic gospel, which is no gospel at all. And in the Gnostic gospel, there was this insider language. There was this elite exclusivity that only certain people would get information. And so Paul throws the word mystery out there. They're leaning in, and then he unveils the mystery of what it is. And it's a powerful time for them as they're hearing this and they're understanding. And Paul's desire is to break down walls, to break down barriers that were there. And that's what the the desire of the gospel is as well. And the mystery wasn't that non-Jews could finally become Christians. We know from reading the Bible that's not the case at all. The mystery was that Jews and non-Jews are alike and are on equal footing and have equal access to God with no walls in between. In other words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Jews. Christ in you, Gentiles. Or Christ in you, non-Jews. The hope of glory. And that's what, that's what Paul is saying here, that this is the hope for the world. And this is breaking down walls. And we need to understand this. And we need to realize this. And this mystery that gets revealed to them, it moves them to mission. Because the second thing we see about mission is that mission levels the playing field. Because at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And mission brings that into play. Ephesians 2 says it this way. But now, these are the words of Paul as well. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The mystery was that Jesus Christ is the secret And he opens the door to everyone. And that's an incredible truth. And that would have, in their minds, as he's speaking to that audience, that would have just continued to help them see people differently, people made in the image of God. Because the gospel's available for everyone. I think many of us would say, well, Josh, we know that. I know that the gospel is available for everyone. And I believe many of us do in our minds. But I have to confess to you, I don't always live my life that way. I tend to look at people and not often get past being skin deep. I look at people and I see their education. I look at them and I see their careers. I look at them and I see their financial ability. I look at them and I see all those things. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you look at people and you see their race. Maybe you look at people and and, and you see their political affiliation. All right, maybe I better stop now, right? Maybe you look at them and you see their vaccination status. Uh-oh. You look at them and you see whether they're maskers or non-maskers. Okay, we could go on and on and on, right? And we look at people and we size them up and we do that. But mission levels the playing field. Mission says there's two ways to see people. As followers of Jesus or people who potentially can become followers of Jesus. And that's how we look at everyone. And if they're followers of Jesus, then we need them and we want to work together to reach those who are not followers of Jesus. 
And Paul is saying that the gospel, in the gospel, there's this mystery that's broken down walls. And the gospel that's available for all types of people. And I wonder, church, who is someone in your life that you have recently written off? Who's someone that you've kind of pushed aside because they see the world a little bit different than you? Who's someone that maybe you said, you know what, I just, I can't relate with them because we are too different. But unfortunately, when we do that, we miss out on so many incredible opportunities, opportunities that God has created for us. I was reading a story this week about Dan Cathy. If you don't know who Dan Cathy is, Dan Cathy is, is the, the owner, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, and he's a man of strong faith. And the story was written by, by a guy by the name of Shane Windemeyer, and it was submitted to the Huffington Post. Shane Windemeyer is the executive director of Campus Pride, which is an LGBTQ, and the largest organization that serves the LGBTQ community on college campuses. And for 10 years, Shane Windemeyer and his organization had picketed and had been anti-Chick-fil-A because of what they said was Chick-fil-A's stance that was anti-LGBTQ. And they picketed. And so one day, you can imagine Shane's surprise when the phone rings and it's Dan Cathy on the other end. And he begins thinking, man, like what am I in for? Is he going to sick his lawyers on me? Is he going to sue me? Like what is this billionaire going to do? And Shane says that as they talked, in, in the heart of the phone call, he begins to hear this, this man that speaks with honor. He begins to hear how, how Dan wants to get to know him, and that one phone call lasted for over an hour, and then there was more text, and there was more phone calls, until eventually, he says, they got to the point where Dan sought to truly understand. And he says, Dan never once asked him to stop protesting. But throughout the conversation, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, and my family. And in return, I learned about his wife and his kids and gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ. He expressed apologies for how people had been treating Shane and his organization poorly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But never once did he back down on his viewpoint of marriage and a biblical definition of marriage. But you know what? Shane says he walked away okay that Dan held that view and okay that they could be different. Dan actually invited him to come to the Peach Bowl, a football bowl game that Chick-fil-A had sponsored, and they were on the sidelines together. And as the article continues, Shane just talks about the utmost respect and admiration that he has for Dan. And Dan, up until this point, never changed Shane's mind. But what he did is he entered into his world and it gave him an opportunity to share the gospel. And it was the gospel that changes hearts and the gospel that changes lives. And that's what we see. Time and time again, what we have opportunities to do because mission levels the playing field. And finally, mission brings urgency. Colossians 1, 28, it continues. It says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And that word that's repeated there, church, it's repeated three times. It's that word every. 
And just like the word all, every means every. There's no exception. And that's where we see this urgency that's there, right? We proclaim him. Admonishing, that word admonishing, it means counseling every man and teaching. That word teaching, it means instructing every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's counsel, there's instruction for every and all. And there's this urgency that's there. That word all is used in one of the most famous passages of scripture, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. When Jesus, it's known as the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all or every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The supremacy of Christ, that Christ is with us, but there's this urgency that's there, right? In the Great Commission, it says go, not come. It says go, not invite. It says reach all, not some. And it says teach them to obey or to observe, not just to learn. And so there's this intense urgency. And it shows us that the vehicle that's going to bring about all of the nations accepting Jesus is us and Christ living through us, living on mission as we go, as we reach all and as we obey. And you and I admonishing and teaching until every man is presented complete in Christ. And we do not rest until we see that happen. Because this morning, church, 80 to 90% of our community is not in a life-giving church. And the largest growing religious population is a group that's called the nuns. And I'm not talking about the sisters from Sound of Music, okay? I'm talking about N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. They have no religious affiliation. That's the largest growing organization or affiliation that's there. And we, living with urgency, we do not rest until we step in, until we continue to reach that. And do we really live with a level of urgency and a level of focus that the Bible demands? Are we content to just sit and talk about it and strategize but never really do anything about it? I found that that's so true in my life. I've seen what, that at times I fall in love with what I'm learning about God, but that knowledge ends up moving me to get puffed up and proud and it doesn't move me to action. And in no other area of our life do we do that. I mean, imagine if I told my daughters in the spring, I want you to go out and clean out all the flower beds and pull all the weeds. And they come back and I say, did you do it, girls? And they said, no, but we memorized what you said, dad. I'm like, no, 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 that's not gonna cut it. So I send them back out and they come back and I say, did you do it? And they say, no, but we learned how to say it in Greek, dad. That's not gonna work, girls, go do it again. They come back, did you do it, girls? No, but we invited our friends over and we found out the three best strategies for pulling weeds in the flower bed. No, when I say it, I expect that you do it with urgency and with accuracy. And that's what God has given us with the mission of God. That's why God fills our hearts and our lives with truth so that we can take it to the world for their good and for his glory. And that's the opportunity. Colossians 1.29, it closes with this. For this purpose also, I labor striving according to his power, which muddily works within me. That word striving as a sports guy, I love that word because it, it literally, it means agonizing. I am striving. I am wrestling 
through this. I labor. I give all that I have to see this happen. But not in my power, but in Christ, which works mightily in me. In other words, if we are going to reach the world, it's Christ working in us. And I wonder, have you ever agonized for the sake of someone else? Have you ever agonized for the good for, of someone? Have you ever agonized so that someone might see Jesus more clearly for who he is? One of my closest friends, Rick, shares a story about his grandfather who was instrumental in the church being established in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. And as his granddad laid on his deathbed, as he's struggling to stay alive, he was agonizing and he was lamenting and he keeps saying these words, God, give me one more. God, give me one more person that I can lead to you. That is finishing well. That is living with urgency. You might say, where do I start? We can begin with prayer and ask God to work where we live, where we work, where we play, where we study. God, start a movement in me first that can impact those places where I live, work, play, and study. Start, maybe we need to start something new. Maybe we need to stop something old but the opportunity that God has given us. And I want to invite the band to the stage. And as they're coming, as we think about urgency, I want you to think about it this way, church. I want you to think about this rope that I have. And as you, as you look at this rope, and as we see this rope, I want this rope to represent time. And I've got 50 feet of rope here, and as I think about time, I think about all the time that God has given us on this earth. The time that God has given us for the good of others. And I th we think about our life and as we pour out our life for the good of others. And we continue to reach out. And we continue to serve. And I want you to think about this rope as stretching out into that parking lot. And down the road. And across the state of North Carolina. And across the world. And I want you to look at this part right here, this little red dot. And this rope represents eternity. Goes on and on and on. And this represents our life. And how often do we spend our time, our cares and our concerns? Well, if I, if I do it well enough in, in this little block right here, then it will set me up really well right here. If I pay attention here, then maybe this little spot right here will work out better. And we care so much and we're so concerned about what really amounts to this. And God is saying, you have all of this, all of eternity, millions and billions of years. And what you're doing with this will impact what happens with that. And that's the opportunity that we have, church, to step into what God has called and created us to be. If you don't know Jesus, I hope that today is a day where you see and where you are reminded of how much he loves you because he has put an army and given them a task and it is to reach out to you with the love and the good news of Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, I want you to imagine with me, as we're spending our time here, the people that are coming up to you and are thanking you for taking risks, for suffering on their behalf, 
for seeing that God had leveled the playing field, for living with urgency for their good. Because their dad met Jesus and it impacted their life. Their mom met Jesus. Their granddad met Jesus because of your investment. And that's what we have an opportunity to do together. If you've never received that gift today, I invite you to do, it, it, it's, it's this simple. And I would invite all of us to, to bow our heads together. And as we reflect on what God has called us to do, as we bow our heads, if you've never received the free gift of Jesus, I invite you to admit in your seat that you are a sinner and that Jesus came and that he died for your sins. And to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and to confess and to call on him as the Lord and Savior of your life. And if you've made that decision, I invite you to tell someone about it before you leave the room today. For those of us that are in Christ, as we sing together, I invite you to reflect and to think about what it is that God is calling and God is telling you to do as you live with every moment as an opportunity for mission. That's mocking. He's impure and He's immorally graceful. He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a prince of princes. He's a king of kings. And he's a lord of lords. That's my king. <laughs>